Al Jazeera podcast. A brazen attack and a reminder that the violence in Syria is far from over. The government blames armed groups for the attack on a military academy in Homs. So, has Bashar al-Assad really won the war? And what role do foreign parties play in Syria? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests from Moscow. Alexei Klebnikov, a Middle East specialist at the Russian International Affairs Council. In Ankara is Umer Oskezelchik, a foreign policy and security analyst who focuses on Syria. And from Norman, Oklahoma, we have Joshua Landis, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma and editor of the Syria Comment blog. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Joshua, let me start with you today. Was this the most coordinated use of drones when it comes to an attack in Syria against the government that we've seen? And from your vantage point, who might be behind this attack? Well, there's, there are a number of groups that could be behind it, but this is definitely what we're seeing today is a major upscaling of the technology being used by the opposition. Now, the opposition has been using drones uh, since 2018. Um, Russia said it had shot down or captured over 200 drones in, in 2020. So this has been a, a constant effort on the part of the opposition groups in Idlib to carry out effective drone strikes. This by far is the most, um, you know, is the most damaging strike to the Syrian regime. And it's going to cause a big change in the way the war is carried out. And as we're seeing already, uh, the Syrian government is retaliating with with tons of force in order to try to stop this. Um, who could carry it out? There are a number of groups that are um, splinter groups from al-Qaeda in Idlib region. And the Syrian government and those groups have been battling each other for weeks. Only two weeks ago, about 20 soldiers were killed in Hama province by an incursion from, from Idlib. The regime pounded back. Just yesterday or two days ago, the government said that it had killed 20, um, 20 uh, soldiers from one of the militias. Um, and and this is this has been going on this tit for tat war. So this is an escalation, but it's a very big escalation. Yeah, Joshua, that's that's what I was going to ask you about next because it was reported that Syria's defense minister had attended the graduation ceremony at this military academy in Homs, but that he left minutes before the attack. Um, this is a major security breach, right? I mean, how big of a blow is this to the Syrian regime? It's a very big blow, and it's and it reminds everybody in Syria, anybody with a memory, it reminds people of the 1979 attack on the Aleppo cadets, in which 89 or 83 Aleppo cadets, all Alawites, were killed uh, by the Muslim Brotherhood in 1979, and this launched a very serious escalation that led to the Hama massacre, where where between 10 and 20,000 people were killed in the town city of Hama. And um, it was a devastating uh, escalation for Syria and marked the next 20 years. And in many ways, a civil war was re a reprise of this fight. So this is a is a wake up call for the regime. And it's it's going to it, it could drive the regime to open negotiations again with Turkey to try to f figure out a solution to Idlib. As their, as their ability to hurt the regime escalates, or it just may lead to more and more fighting and the regime doubling down on reprisals. 
Uh, Omar, I, I think I saw you reacting to what uh, Joshua was saying there. I, I wanted to get your perspective on if you think that an attack this significant could could change the dynamic in Syria. Could it actually um, essentially push the Syrian government into trying to open negotiations with Turkey? So when it comes to the attack itself, uh, I can agree with Joshua that it was likely opposition groups, but there's also the less likely option that it could also be Iranian uh, is a false flag attack. As we know, the Iranian uh, employ a drone base quite nearly and could conduct this attack. But I would not deem this drone attack the most deadliest attack so far. I think the attack on Humaymin Air Base some years ago was much more deadly. And I'm very hesitant to make a comparison with uh, the Muslim Brotherhoods and uh, in the past uh, and the killing of the cadets in Aleppo. I think this is something much different. And this shows that there is a security leak inside the Assad regime. And Damascus hasn't is a security apparatus under control. There are still intelligence leaking to the Syrian opposition and even likely to radical groups in Idlib. So what is here worrying is that while the drone attack itself uh, attacked a military ceremony and mostly military figures were killed in this uh, drone attack, the response by the Assad regime and by the Russian Air Force was to uh, bomb in Idlib and the targets were not only military targets. Several civilians died in these targets, and we have seen that there was a small uh, but important migration movement already beginning in the area, which is quite uh, something to worry about for Turkey, who doesn't want any new migration wave at its borders. Mm. So I therefore... I think this is significant, but I also do not think that this would change the balance of power in Syria. As we know, in 2020, Turkey established a balance of power in its Operation Spring Shield and prevented a military solution in Syria and prevented the killing of uh, thousands of Syrians and the mass migration of more than two million Syrians from Idlib towards Turkey and Europe. So, uh, but towards Joshua's suggestion, uh, possible negotiations with Turkey, I'm quite uh, doubtful about that. I do not think that uh, the Assad regime will mm. be open to negotiate with Turkey in a sincere way. We have seen that the Assad regime feels empowered by its policy of not making any concessions and mm. uh, waiting for other parties to change their position. Uh, Umer, I guess one of the big questions is why carry out an attack like this now? And, and what message ultimately is being sent by this drone attack? So the timing of this attack, I do not think, was decided by the attacker. The timing of this was actually decided by the event planners and by the ones who uh, did not prevent the security leak from the side of the Assad regime. There was an opportunity and this opportunity was used. I, do, I think it would be foolish for the opposition force in Idlib and especially the radical groups to not use such a security leak. This is uh, un unbelievable. But I do think, and I can underline here, that this uh, attack in itself will most likely not have the major ramifications other than retaliation attacks of the Assad regime and Russian Air Force towards civilian and military targets in Idlib. Uh, Alexei, I, I want to ask you to follow up a bit on what Omer was saying there when it comes to the retaliatory aspect of what comes next. You know, the Syrian government has blamed what it describes as terrorist organizations supported by known international parties. Uh, they promised to respond by force. Uh, it's bombarded the northern Idlib region, uh, which is controlled by the opposition. What will the ramifications of this drone attack be? What kind of a retaliation are we going to see going forward? 
so we've already uh, heard reports from the Syrian Defense Ministry of the uh, shellings and artillery rounds, and uh, I think during today, uh, during the day, Russian air forces also um, attacked several targets in Alhab uh, Valley. Um, so that's kind of a traditional response if you look back uh, since, you know, 2018-19. That's the, the, the um, quite traditional way to respond to such attacks. And plus, the drone attacks, uh, as Joshua rightly mentioned, they've been carried out for quite some time, for several years, and uh, a lot of them were targeting uh, Russian uh, air base in Hamimim. But the scale of this attack is uh, so large scale that on the one hand, it uh, demonstrates the increased capacity of the um, military groups and radicals in, in Idlib to uh, target um, government forces, including, you know, even Russian forces. But on the other hand, it cannot change uh, strategic kind of status quo uh, in, in, the, in the area. Um, so the ramifications, the retaliation mm. from the Russian side and from the Syrian side also cannot go you know, out of proportion and cannot for the moment to break the status quo because if we see an escalation in a, not a limited but a large-scale offensive on the Syrian and Russian side towards mm. Idlib, that will require... Uh, inevitably coordination or some or, or it will lead to a rift and an escalation with turkey so and uh for the time being i don't see that uh, um that's a, uh, a willing mm. approach uh from all parties because regardless of uh whoever thinks you know what is going on between damascus and ankara mm. the uh, dialogue and uh, negotiations are ongoing um, the process of normalization is underway. Yes, it's not an easy one. It's very mm. complicated. Uh, both sides are very tough negotiators. And uh, this 10 years mm. uh, that passed since the start, not 10, but already to 12, it's very hard to imagine. No, it's going to be a quick road. Uh, but, Alexei, I'm sorry, uh, to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but it's just I see that Omar uh, wants to respond to something you're saying. Yes. So I just want uh, to give him a chance to jump in. in here. Yeah. Go ahead, Omar. Yeah, let me jump in and say that I think this shows, and the explanation from Alex also shows, and I agree with him, that the conflict in Syria isn't over. It is just that we have a balance of power. If Russia and the Assad regime and Iran want to take new military actions, Turkey is preventing them. Turkey wants to take new military actions. Russia and the U.S. are cooperating and preventing Turkey. So Correct. we have a balance of power in Syria, which is preventing further actions. And this balance of power has ensured a relative Calm, but the drone mm. strike attack itself shows that all of the reasons which led to the Syrian conflict and which multiplied the brutality of the Syrian conflict are still present and they have not been resolved. All right, uh, uh, Umer, um, I'm going to jump back to Alexei now. Uh, Alexei, um, I'm going to let you finish the point you were making, but I also want to ask you about the fact you mentioned Russian forces in your previous answer. Of course, Bashar al-Assad has drawn heavily on military backing from Russia in the past. Russia has helped in efforts to strengthen the Syrian military. What is Russia willing to do at this stage when it comes to continuing to back the Syrian regime? Well, I don't think uh, the, the fundamental rationale has changed. Uh, since 2015, so um, 
As you know, Russia has secured two military bases, one Hamimim in the air base and one Tartus, uh, one in Tartus, in the naval one. So that's, that means Russia is there to stay for at least, uh, you know, the, the agreement was signed for 49 years. So uh, Russian forces will stay there. Also, we shouldn't also exaggerate or, you know, overestimate the Russian military presence, which mainly uh, around uh, the, the uh, air forces and uh, Russian military police and, and special forces and, and the Navy, of course. Mm. And that's never went uh, over than five or 6,000 uh, personnel, including everyone, not only the military. So uh, the Russian foothold in Syria militarily is uh, there to stay, and I don't see that expanding or shrinking. So it's kind of being on a, a, on a um, uh, balanced kind of mm. um, uh, way. Um, as for the uh, future, again, it's also uh, I, I, Russia never aimed at uh, you know growing its military capacity inside the country because uh, from the very beginning, back in 2015, when Russia decided to step in with its uh, air forces, that was kind of a labor division with Iran, who provided more of a ground forces on the ground, and Russia uh, provided cover from the sky, mm. and that's what. Uh, Kind of played out into the hands of Damascus, uh, helping uh, the Syrian government to uh, to preserve what it had and uh, regain uh, control over the majority of the country. Now they control about 60-65 percent. Um, but for the time being, again, as for the Russian military plans, uh, I don't see any kind of uh, mm. strategic or even tactical change in in growing or increase or, or decreasing capacities. All right. Uh, Joshua, I see you want to jump in. Please go ahead. You know, both both Omar and Alexei have talked about uh, the balance of power being fairly stable in Syria. But <clears throat> but I would I would uh, underline that in, we've seen in every sector of Syria, whether it's the Turkish dominated sector, American or Russian and government sector, there has been great instability in the last few weeks. We're watching right now as Turkey uh, takes revenge for the for the PKK attacks in Ankara the other day, and has has killed um, twenty to thirty people in the in the northeast Syria, destroyed a lot of infrastructure. America shot down a Turkish drone, um, and we've seen fighting also in north North Aleppo between various groups who are jockeying for power, and we've seen demonstrations in the Jebel Druze and instability in Syria. I think, in some ways, the poverty. The growing economic despair of Syrians in every sector um, is causing great instability. And this kind of violence that we're seeing, the uptick in violence, whether it's between Kurds and Arab tribes in the northeast or the Druze, um, people are despairing in Syria. There, there is not a good answer to Syria. And between sanctions, corruption, and this constant warfare, I think that we're going to see— um, we're, we're going to see more instability. This is not a stable situation in Syria. I mean, Joshua, you're talking about the instability. You know, President Bashar al-Assad says that his country is no longer at war. But everything you mentioned and the brazen attack, like the one that happened on the military academy in Homs, I mean, doesn't that all belie that statement? Yes. I mean, we've got to, you know, in a sense, the major fighting is over. Mm -hmm. The opposition is no longer a tenable it's not going to march to Damascus and overthrow Assad, um, but it's extremely unstable. And, and 
between sanctions and economic collapse in the region, we're going to see a lot more instability. And that's, I think, why Arab governments have pushed uh, to normalize with Syria in a desperate attempt to try to kickstart the economy. But of course, America and others uh, and Europe don't want that normalization. They've said, no, we're not going to lift sanctions. The effort to go to China by Bashar is, in, in a sense, because of opening American pressure. Some opening. The Arabs did not stop because of American pressure. They stated oh, that Omar, they stopped me, the talks with the Assad regime because Omar, let's, of let's just the let Assad Joshua regime's finish. rejection. Let's just let Joshua finish, then yeah. I'll, I'll come to you for your response. Go ahead, Joshua. Right. No, it's, it's quite clear that, you know, uh, the Arab the Arab governments normalized with Syria because they, they understand that Assad is not leaving, but they, they also worry that the situation is getting worse. There's going to be more refugees. Mm. There's going to be more drugs. There's going to be more instability. And just at a time when Arab governments in the Gulf and other places are trying to write a new future for the Arab world and trying to, to, to say, we're the future, we're growing economically, we're going to bring stability, and we're going to play a big role on the world stage. But this, this undercuts that entire message. Mm. Uh, Omar, I know you wanted to jump in. Go ahead. Yes, let me say, first of all, the Arab normalization is now stalled. There isn't any real progress. The, uh, and this is not due to any kind of American pressure. We know that in America, in the U.S., there are forces like Brett McGurk, the National Security Council advisor for Middle East and North, uh, and North uh, America, Africa, who actually uh, support and encourage Arab states to talk with the Assad regime. The real reason why the Arab states stopped and stalled the neg negotiations and normalization process with the Assad regime Regime is because of the Assad regime's uh, unwillingness and uh, non-capacity to provide and, uh, for the Arab demands. The Assad regime has not made, taken any steps in, towards Arab states. It was so far a one-way route, and the Arab states are... Uh, they're fed up. They don't want to go if they don't see any uh, counter-reaction uh, from the Assad regime and they don't see any steps taken by the Assad regime. And here, I think, the Arab states did not talk to the Assad regime because they wanted to make uh, peace in Syria and they want to increase the livelihood of the Syrians. No. The, they talked with the Assad regime specifically because the Assad regime created problems for the Arab states, and the Arab states thought that they can resolve these problems by talking with the Assad regime, and namely here, the Captagon drug trade. The Assad regime has become the most biggest drug producer in the region, and it's exporting drugs and mass to the area, to Saudi Arabia, to Jordan. This is a huge security problem. And then we also have the use of the refugees by the Assad regime to try to change popular opinion in the Arab states, and it worked. But this idea, idea of the Assad regime that as long as it doesn't make concessions, it creates problems for others, that they have to speak with the Assad regime, that uh, he can mm. uh, make gains, is also a received for a continuous crisis in Syria. The crisis in Syria can only end if we see a political transition, mm. and Turkey in 2020 blocked the way for a military solution. But since then, we haven't seen any real progress towards a political solution in Syria. And I'm not hopeful we will see it anytime soon. Um, Alexei, I saw you reacting to some of what Joshua was saying and some of what Omar was saying, and it looked like you wanted to jump in. So please go ahead. Um, so the uh, Arab, I mean, the normalization between Syria and Arab states um, you see, it's kind of, uh, we need to try to walk into, you know, the shoes of Damascus and uh, from, from their perspective, uh, you know, 
technically it gives nothing this normalization it doesn't give you any contracts it doesn't give you any money whatever it's just like a facade like an imagery win so why should you get anything uh back for it you know uh as far as i remember uh, correct me if i'm wrong there was a already two years ago the project of re resumption of arab gas pipeline which was discussed and america gave a green light but it never actually uh, as far as i remember got uh functional you know to to, to deliver gas and electricity from from uh, egypt via jordan and syria to lebanon so that was kind of a test for the ability of the you know states to negotiate and to see whether americans can lift some sanctions but um, that never started to work uh plus uh the united states didn't extend the uh, sanctions way there, which was related to the um, the earthquake, to the February earthquake. So, of course, uh, from Damascus' point of view, it needs to see, I mean, it wants to see, it, it wishes to see some sanctions relief or, or easing. Uh, and, of course, it may look from, you know, from the outside that, yes, mm. Assad is, uh, or Damascus supports the the drug uh, producing and drug trade but uh, of course i mean look at the reasons i mean the guys guys are lacking of money they don't have funds they don't have they have problems with energy with fuel with everything and i mean so many examples in the history when uh, you know some uh, actors lack of money drugs uh, are quite convenient uh, tool to try to at least fix some problems with uh, with that so we need to probably be more pragmatic in that uh, sense and be more honest with uh, Alexi, uh, evaluating it, at least the, this. Uh, Alexi, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's just that we are starting to run out of time. Uh, it's okay. And I want to. I want to go to Joshua. Joshua, you know, we've talked about a lot of the different dimensions of the conflict in Syria, uh, but I want to talk about the humanitarian needs of Syrians uh, at this stage. Uh, you have millions of people who are internally displaced. Uh, there are millions of Syrian refugees and asylum seekers who have fled Syria. Um, how bad is the situation currently? And from your vantage point, is the international community doing enough to help? The, the international community is not doing enough to help. Um, <clears throat> the Syrian situation is, is very desperate. And that's why we're seeing, I think, so many, so many disturbances around the country. Uh, and and it's going to get worse. The Syrian people are really the pawns and trapped in this larger conflict that we're hearing about right now. But this clash between Russia and the United States, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, and and between various sects within Syria, it, it is um, it's going nowhere. It's going down. And the, economically, more and more Syrians are leaving. We see them continuing to go over the border into into Lebanon and Jordan. And instead of reversing and Syria rebuilding, all the powers, in a sense, are conspiring to keep Syria in ruins and to and it's not clear that they're going to change the political dynamic inside Syria. Mm. So we've got a frozen situation which is leading, which is just destroying the Syrian people. And, and, and Joshua, this kind of this Joshua, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. We, we literally have about a minute and a half okay. left. I just want to also ask you, um, after... 12 years of conflict. Is Syria ever going to see any kind of lasting peace? Well, I think it will build in that direction, because as we're seeing, more and more uh, regional powers are beginning to, to realize that this effort to overthrow the Syrian government failed. You know, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, United States all tried to overthrow the Assad regime. And 
Many of them backed away from it at the last moment in 2015 when they could have overthrown it, but they got spooked by the evolution of the Syrian opposition into much more radical groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda. And, mm. and today, we've got this frozen situation mm. where, uh, where, where it, it's, it's getting worse all the time. Mm. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Alexei Klebnikov, Omer Ozkezilchik, and Joshua Landis. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Sarah Gill, Laurent Peter, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Hasib Hashmi. The program was edited by Alexander Kohler, Linda Wynn, Vanessa Keneally, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Saturday for our next episode. Coming up on The Take, is Ukraine's new law mandating women with a medical or pharmaceutical degree to register for conscription a sign of the shifting roles of women in Ukrainian society? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.